looking at two short verses this morning. As Paul begins to give us very specific instructions as how we can live the Christian life in light of what God has done for us. Before we go into this, I'm going to be quoting an author by the name of David Pallison, some articles that he wrote several years ago, and those have recently been pulled into a book that was released last year called Good and Angry, um, subtitled Redeeming Anger, Irritation, Complaining, and Bitterness. It's a fantastic book. Um, I highly recommend it. It's for you. It's available on our book table if you're curious at the end of our time together. Let us pray for God's blessing on His Word. Father, we pray, just the words that Crystal and Ellen just sang, that you would show us Christ, that you would reveal your glory, that we might know you and see you and experience you, and that our lives and our hearts and our emotions would be conformed to you. We pray this in your Son's name, amen. Anger. So which is worse? Hot-tempered rage or the cold, seething quietness? Which one's worse? Our culture would say that anger is something that happens to you. It would say that it is something that just is. It is something that happens to you. It's the result of a reaction that generates from you. But anger is something much more than just something that is, and it's just something, and is much more than something that just happens to you, because anger is something that you do with all that you are, with your whole being and your whole person. Anger engages certainly our emotions, from mild irritation to withdrawal and going into your cave and putting up the walls to raging and to out, outwardly externally expressed anger. Anger involves our body from our stomach getting tied up in knots, to our adrenaline moving, our heart pumping, our muscles getting clenched, our, our face tightening. And if we're an expression of anger, our body language gets really loud as we start to express it much more emphatically and much more dramatically as our body is expressing that anger. It works out in our minds where we replay a situation again and again. I, I can't believe that person would do that. And again, we, and we rehearse it over and over, and then we begin to think about the ways that we would have responded differently or the things that we wish we had said in that moment. And at times, the rehearsal of it in our mind again and again turns into thoughts of, oh, which, what I wish would happen to that person. Oh, and at times, what, what ill will, wouldn't it be great if, if that person got what they were due and you wish ill upon that person in your own thoughts? I want to make that person pay. It comes out in our words, whether that's biting, sarcastic comments, or cursing, or exaggerations. It also comes out in our behaviors, and various escapes that we use to comfort ourselves in our anger. And again, outward expressions such as yelling and slamming the door to withdrawing and sealing ourselves off from everyone else. Anger is not just something that just is. It is something that you do with all that you are and that you do it with your whole being. But rightly used, anger is a powerful motivator for godliness. It is a powerful motivation for goodness, a powerful motivation for the flourishing of mankind. But wrongly used, it is destructive. Destructive of you, destructive of your relationships, destructive of others around you and destructive of the unity with which Jesus for which Jesus Christ died to accomplish so Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4 he gives this startling statement he says be angry 
but he immediately qualifies it. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. He begins with that charge, be angry. Yes, there is such a thing as Christian anger. There is such a thing as holy anger. There is such a thing as right anger. How do we know this? Well, it's pretty clear in the Bible. I mean, consider, who is the most angry person in the Bible? Who is the most angry being in the Bible? It's God. I mean, it's God himself. In a few verses, later in Ephesians, we're going to read a passage that where Ephesians 5 says that the anger of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. That it is good and right for God to be angry. Also in the life of Jesus, we see several examples of Jesus being angry. And yet in doing so, he is without sin in his anger. There are some things in your life that you are way too angry about. Slights of your reputation. Moments when you are out of control. Times when another person's sinfulness reflects badly upon you. And there are other things in your life that you are not angry enough about. Your own sinfulness. Disrespect for God. Injustice in our world and injustice in our own community. And this Christian anger, this godly anger, is something that too few Christians either feel or either express. And too few Christians experience it or express it to the damage of ourselves, to the damage of our families, and even to promoting or or being accomplice to the spread of evil. Be angry. I think it's helpful for us to understand just how the physiology of anger works as it gives a great illustration of what Paul's about to call us to in the subsequent verses. Here's how anger works within our body. When we get mad is that there's a portion of our brain deep inside of it stemming from what's called the limbic system. And the limbic system is the emotional control center of our brain. And the limbic system is surrounded on the outside by the cerebral cortex, and that's where you do all the thinking portions of your brain. And so what happens is that when someone is experiencing anger, when they're expressing anger, when they're experiencing anger, is that their limbic system begins to work, and it sometimes goes into overdrive. And when when a person is expressing anger, what literally happens is that the emotional portion of your brain shuts off the thinking portion of your brain. It literally ceases it from function. It's the emotional portion of your brain that that allows for you to have fight-or-flight responses. It's where your survival instincts are rooted. It's also the portion of your brain where emotional memory is tied. And within the limbic system, there's a portion of it called the amygdala. And one of the things that it serves to do is it serves as a, a, a switching function. That when data comes into the brain, it decides whether or not it's going to send that data to the thinking portion of the brain or to the emotional reactive portion of the brain. And in the expressions of anger, you can go into this thing called an amygdala override, and what happens is that hormones are released that flow throughout your body, change your blood pressure, change your heart rate, change the way your, blood, your brain is functioning at that, pers- at that moment, and where your brain literally stops thinking. And it's very necessary for survival and, for, and to respond immediately in very intense situations. But on average, it can take a person 20 minutes who has experienced or expressed anger. On average, it takes about 20 minutes for that person to calm down and to move physiologically from the emotional reactive portion of their brain to the thinking areas of their brain. 
Other couple factoids. For those of you that are teenagers, it's worthwhile for you to know that the emotional portion of your brain fully matures many years before the thinking portion of your brain does. So what this means is that you have fully functional adult emotions without the control mechanism to contain them. For men, that usually doesn't fully mature until the age of 25, which is very strongly correlated with actuarial tables for insurance, <laughs> as men's insurance rates drop significantly at, at that age. And so given this background, Paul gives the admonition, be angry with the three caveats. Be angry and do not sin. Be angry, do not let the sun go down. Be angry, give no opportunity for the devil. Be angry and do not sin. Well, how do you do that? Many therapists today, secular therapists and many Christian therapists would say that the way you do that is through, if you are angry, if you have a lot of anger within you, that the most healthy way for you to deal with this is for you to vent your anger. And there are many popular methods for venting your anger. That if you've got it, that the anger is building up with you, that kind of like a, a pressure cooker that's boiling, that the, the steam needs to be released, the anger needs to be vented so that the whole thing doesn't blow up. This idea is based upon a, a fluid theory of anger, that anger is like this liquid, this chemical that's inside of you that, that grows and that needs to be released or, um, or it'll blow. However, not only is that a, not an idea rooted in Scripture, it's also an idea that today many psychologists and psychiatrists are directly refuting as how to deal with anger. An article recently from Psychology Today states this, With all the stress that is going on in our hectic lives, it's not unusual to feel angry and want to lash out at people, to scream, to punch pillows, or worse. In fact, a lot of people believe that this kind of catharsis or open expression is the best way to overcome angry feelings. Unfortunately, this is one of the most widespread social myths of our time, largely due to the legacy of Joseph Brewer and Sigmund Freud's well-known theory that bottled-up anger is more harmful than expressed anger. Pause for a second. If you are a Christian and you, you think just as a, as a rule of life that the way that the world works is that if there is anger, it needs to be vented, that if you are angry, you need to find someone to vent that anger to, at least acknowledge that you need to acknowledge that that idea is not a natural norm. It is an idea originated by Sigmund Freud, and it's an idea by Freud that you have embodied into your life and has taken as a hard truth, if you will. But he continues, it turns out that when put to the test, researchers have discovered that not only does venting not necessarily improve our psychological state, it may actually worsen it. Yes, you read that correctly, or you heard it from me. Angry tirades, punching pillows, or anything else, and confrontation of the person we view as the cause of our anger doesn't necessarily reduce or resolve our anger. In some cases, it makes it worse. Not to mention the regret that we often feel after doing something rash. In fact, Brad Bushman, one of today's leading researchers on anger and aggressive responding, believes that, quote, venting to reduce anger is like using gasoline to put out a fire. It only feeds the flame. So when Scripture says, be angry and do not sin, how do you do that? Well, Scripture gives a great insight because Paul here in this statement is quoting Psalm 4, verse 4. And Psalm 4, 4 says this, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. 
great practical advice. What's the way to prevent sin? Is you engage your cerebral cortex. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds. That is, separate yourself from the situation and think about it by yourself and be silent. Be silent means that you don't sit there not talking, replaying the thing in your mind again and again and again and again. It is a matter of the silence in the, in, in the vein of be still and know that I am God. Quiet your mind and be silent before him and ponder who God is and ponder the Lord's faithfulness in the midst of it. Doing so does not discourage action. It does not discourage recourse, but rather what it does is that by pondering on your beds and being silent allows you to engage in right action, right action where anger and holiness go hand in hand. In particular, what are you supposed to ponder? I've got seven questions that we're going to work through here this morning. They're on the back of your outline for those of you that have them. Seven questions for you to engage your cerebral cortex with. First question to ask ourselves, and when you, I would encourage you to use these questions in your journal if you're angry to save this sheet and to re- work through them. And if you're in a really challenging situation, to work through them with another person who can give you honest feedback and honest, uh, honest guidance in terms of how you're responding. The first question is this, do you get angry about the right things? Anger is a response to a perceived wrong. Are you perceiving correctly? Is your anger free from hurt pride? Is it freed from spite or animosity or vindictiveness or just simply being out of control? One way to, to evaluate that is to say, would you be this angry if it happened to some to your neighbor instead of to you? Would you have the same level of response? My good friend, Johnny Boy, who's been making his face through this series, talking about Christian anger, he says, there is a great need in the contemporary world for more Christian anger. Are you perceiving rightly? We human beings compromise with sin in a way that God never does. In the face of blatant evil, we should be indignant, not tolerant, angry, not apathetic. If God hates sin, his people should hate it too. If evil arouses his anger, it should arouse ours also. Are you getting angry about the right things? Second question to ask yourself is that do you express anger in the right way? It is possible to be rightly angry, but to wrongly express that anger. David Pallison gives this insight. The clearest gauge of whether anger is right or wrong in its expression is whether it acts to to condemn or to offer help. We are called to put our faith in the fact that vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. Our anger is not meant to be punitive or to get even. It is meant to do good first, and obviously to the victims or potential victims of evil. And it is meant to do good second, sometimes not so obviously, to the perpetrators of evil. Anger motivates us to intervene to stop wrong, to protect the weak, to challenge tyrants, some of whom may be sitting before us, to reprove, to warn, 
to warn the unruly, to alert people of danger. But the dynamic of grace-giving and peacemaking must finally permeate our anger. Otherwise, we are guilty of merciless judgment, of swiping specks with boards lodged in our own eyes. What are right expressions of anger? Because again, anger is something you do with all that you are. So right expression of anger, whether it's words, emotions, the tone of your voice, the expressions on your face, it is a response that does good. A response that loves. Do you express anger in the right way? Third question to ask. How long does your anger last? David Pallison continues. How else can you tell if anger is godly? One gauge is its duration. When anger lasts a day, a week, a decade, a lifetime, something has gone wrong. When anger settles into bitterness and hostility, the devil wins the game. We become like our oppressors, returning evil for evil. Do you get over your anger or does it fester? Do your attitudes towards people become poisoned with malice, disdain, and condemnation? Where you keep short accounts on your own sins, including the manifold sins of anger, mercy will continually flow into your own life, making you merciful to others. Paul gives, urges consideration of this exact issue when he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. What happens if the sun sets on your anger? It turns into bitterness. Bitterness is simply anger plus time. It turns into wrath. And wrath is simply anger plus a, determined, a determination to bring justice by your own hand. It brings about malice and then ultimately the destruction of your soul. Because you cannot stay spiritually healthy and angry, even if it is a godly anger. For the wise know that we should be slow to speak and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So what does that mean when you're angry? Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. Don't coddle your anger. Don't let it go unresolved. Don't let the sun set on it. It's a, very, it's a good rule, never to go to bed angry, particularly for people who are married. It's a very good practical advice. Don't go to bed angry as a family. Stay up until things are resolved. Never go to bed angry. At the same time, this is also just a metaphor. It's not instructing that people at the equator have more time to be angry than the people at the North Pole, right? It's saying, don't let the sun go down in your anger. Don't let anger be unresolved. Don't let it smolder. I mean, there are some things that cannot be resolved in the night. But, it, but if they cannot be resolved in the night, it's a determination that you're not going to let the sun set, that you're going to stay at it until your anger gets resolved. How do you do that? One practical way to do that, in addition to working through these questions or while you're working through these questions, is to pray and to pray earnestly. And what you pray for is you pray entrusting that situation to the Lord. And in the situation that you're dealing with, you pray for God's redemption of that situation. Repentance and reconciliation were needed. At times you pray for justice. And in situations of severe evil, you pray for the eradication of evil. But vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. For example, on the great evil that's present on our earth, what do you pray for? You pray that God would redeem it. 
And if he's determined that he's not going to redeem it, you pray that evil would stop. And you pray that God would take action. And then in praying these things, you rest in a sovereign God. And by resting in him, you also take courage because godly anger will move you to action in love. It will move you in love. The anger, anger and love go together. Godly anger and love go together to propel godliness and to propel goodness and to propel human flourishing. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. There's some of you here who have been nursing hurts for years. Maybe to the person that's sitting next to you. That they did something decades ago that you haven't forgiven and that you won't let go. And so you've kept your anger and your bitterness and you've kind of stroked it when you've needed to. You've used it to manipulate the response of the other person and then hold it over their head when you've wanted to get something from them or extract something from them. And as you have held on to that anger, it has been a cancer that has just been eating away at your soul and just taking chunks out of it and chunks out of it and you don't even know it. And you're just becoming more and more bitter. And if you're a Christian, you can ask, ask yourself the question, do you believe that God has forgiven you for your sins? Yes, absolutely. Is, God's, is his grace, is God big enough to forgive your sins? Hallelujah, he is. But let me ask you then, is he big enough to forgive their sin also? Is he big enough to forgive the sin of the person sitting next to you or the person that has hurt you? And if he has forgiven their sin, who are you not to? Who are you to harbor a grudge? Who are you to make yourself God that your standard is somehow greater than his? Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Fourth question to evaluate your with is how controlled is your anger? Pallison writes, Godly anger is emotion controlled by a purpose imposed on us by the Lord God. Anger, godly anger, is consistent with those fruits of the Spirit termed self-control, gentleness, and patience. Anger and the fruits of the Spirit go hand in hand, godly anger. Ungodly anger is emotion controlled by the impulses of our own hearts and runs out of control, harsh, and is easily provoked. Jay Adams put it well. Anger is the emotion that, God, that has been given by God to attack problems. The energies of anger must be productively released under control towards a problem. Anger must be directed towards destroying the problem, not towards destroying the person. Anger, like a good horse, must be bridled. And so he asks, is your anger controlled by a godly agenda? Is it controlled by confidence in God's sovereignty, by submission to his purpose? Or is it out of God's control? Is your anger unpredictable, vigilante, either abusive or brooding? Is your anger grace-giving or is it judgmental? How controlled is your anger? And then he gives a very helpful example. I said, when your child mocks or defies you as a parent, you don't simply observe in a detached way. Oh, that's interesting. Now, I believe I am hearing and seeing something that perhaps fits to the category of 
sin. Why, yes, indeed. As I think about it, that pattern of words seems inconsistent with obedient respect. Hmm. I wonder how I ought to, I wonder how I ought to handle the situation. Oh, no. You are made to react emotionally, he continues. A child is not supposed to mock his parents. The offense rightly pushes a button and arouses something in you. Now, that anger easily becomes sinful, but it need not. It can be, it can be bridled. Let's deal with this. The anger provides energy to name clearly what was wrong, to discipline the child, to talk with him, comfort him, and give love to him. Anger is sinful and destructive if punitive. It is righteous and loving if it is disciplinary. How controlled is your anger? Question number five. What motivates your anger? He continues. The sinfulness or godliness of anger arises from the motive. People motivated by a desire for God's glory, for personal conformity to Jesus' model and will, and for the well-being of others, will be angry in one way. People motivated by the desires of the body and mind, by pride and false beliefs, will be angry in a very different way. The simplest question to ask about what underlies anger is, what do I really want? If you are honest... With God's help, you can recognize if you really crave to get even or to hurt someone or not to be inconvenienced or to prove someone wrong or to score points or to be recognized and, recognized and appreciated or to humiliate or to win or to get your own way. You are ruled by what the Bible terms the self. And with God's help, you can also recognize if you really want the Lord to be honored in your word, deed, attitude, and intention. This is also the reason what motivates your anger, why it is so important to be connected in relationship with other Christians, with people that you have invited to speak into your life, so that, you can, so that they can help you see the things that you are blind to, that they can help you see the things that you have deceived yourself and they can give you godly wisdom and counsel in the situation that you are faced with. What motivates your anger? Question number six. Is your anger primed and ready to respond to another person's habitual sins? Pallison continues. Our brothers and sisters, let alone our enemies, often repeat their sins over and over. Jesus spoke of 70 times 7 and 7 times a day. Is your anger reaction equally repetitive? Repeated arguments in which the verbal volleys follow the same scripted pattern time after time. If so, they reveal that something is wrong with your anger. Godly anger is part of grace and peacemaking. Grace breaks the cycle of provocation and reaction so characteristic of life in a sinful world. Sins, in, sins including sinful anger, are usually repetitive. But godly anger starts fresh because it keeps no record of wrongs. It keeps looking for how God is at work in the other person and in the situation, just as he is at work in me. Is your anger primed and ready to respond to another person's habitual sins? Some families are very peaceful. Some families are very well-functioning, or so it seems, because everyone in the family is acting in fear of tripping the anger 
of one of the family members. Everybody is manipulating their response, couching their words. They're not going to be fully honest. They're not going to be fully known because they're afraid of how this other person might respond, knowing that they might crack at any particular moment. So they use very careful, precise language, tip, tiptoeing around. And if that's you, are you the one who is on the watch? That you've got the record of wrongs and you are waiting for the person to trip up the next time. You are ready to snap. You are ready to, to release your uh, inner incredible hulk at any moment. Ready for it to let loose. Now for those of you that are friends of the Avenger, you know that the Incredible Hulk can only become the Incredible Hulk when he's angry, correct? And he only can only become the Incredible Hulk when he's angry. And so how is it that Bruce Banner, that Bruce Banner the scientist, can become the Incredible Hulk at any moment? How is it? What's the answer? That's my secret, Cap. I'm always angry. Cocked and loaded primed and ready to snap at any moment. May that not be true of you. Seventh question. What is the effect of your anger? A final way to distinguish righteous anger from sinful anger is by the effects. Sinful anger creates more problems. It complicates matter. It hurts people. It puts them on the defensive. The way you come across tempts them to duck or retaliate. Now, people may still duck or, duck or retaliate when faced with the, with the just, accurate, and merciful words of godly anger. But you aren't the occasion of the stumbling. They are tempted simply, simply by the sinfulness of their own hearts. Gracious words are sweet to the taste, even when they contain tough, tough truths. They breathe helpful intent. Godly anger is part of solving problems. Generally, righteous anger creates gracious circles. People often respond amazingly well to the truth spoken in love. Even when a person rebuffs you at first, the way you did things lodges in his mind. He can't deny the simple good sense of what you said. He can't deny the humility and lack of condemnation in your manner. You frustrate his attempt to defend himself by hurling accusations back at you. You didn't treat him the way he treated you. That is the most powerful force on the planet. So to evaluate yourself, what is the effect of your anger? The Apostle Paul, in addition to this calling us to ponder and these questions that are here, which David Pallison pulls from the whole of Scripture. Paul gives one more admonition. Be angry, do not sin, don't let the sun go down in your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. For the devil knows how fine a line it is between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. He knows how hard it is for us to handle anger in an appropriate and godly way. He knows how easy it is for our emotions to override our brain so that we literally stop thinking and for him to guide the torrent that is about to be unleashed. The Bible tells us that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, looking for someone who is cocked and loaded, seeking someone who he can exploit the situation. And there is nothing more that the devil enjoys than instilling division in the body of Christ for which Jesus died to unite. Nothing more that he celebrates than creating enmity between family members, making a mockery of the unity that Christ died to achieve. Be angry, 
and do not sin. Be angry and do not let the sun go down on your anger. Be angry and give no opportunity for the, to the devil. For anger is like dynamite. It is something, or nitroglycerin, it is something that has potential for great good. But it is inherently unstable, even godly anger. And consider the anger of God. For there is no being who is more angry at injustice than God himself. No being who is more angry at sin or self-centeredness or abuse or wrongdoing than God himself. But his anger, fueled by his love, sent his own son Jesus Christ to the cross so that through his death and resurrection, you would not be the objects of his wrath but be the objects of his redemption. And so may you and may your anger Fueled by his love, may it too bring about redemption in your life and the lives of others. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for anger. That's kind of a scary thing to say. I thank you for your anger that you are a God who has emotions. And that your perfect anger is paired with your perfect holiness and your perfect love. And those things joined together have brought about your, the redemption of this world and the restoration of your people. So Father, we pray that you would sanctify our anger. For the things in our lives which we are way too angry about, Lord, would we submit them to you and repent. For the things in our lives that we are not angry enough about, our own sinfulness the injustice around us. Lord, by your Spirit, would you make us, God, give us godly anger that fueled by your love it might bring about redemption, just the way that your anger and your love brought about our redemption through the sacrifice of Christ. Lord, would you be honored and glorified in us and in our emotions. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please stand with us as we continue worshiping. Display. 